0: Father in Heaven, may we never cease to give thanks for the Scripture. And may we never cease to honor You by listening well and by honoring those who, through whom You work to bring us this Word and much, at times, danger to themselves and much self-exposure and so i pray that we would now listen worthy of you in jesus name amen turn please to 1st thessalonians in chapter 5 1st thessalonians chapter 5 i want to read verse 12 through the end of the chapter we won't be able to deal with all of that today but i want us to, to see it all 1st thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12 please But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body become blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, question... Is what brings Paul to this point? I mean, why does he say these particular things to them here? It's a very important question. I think for them, for us, anytime we're reading through the Scripture, that's a question. At least for me, that I'm always asking: Why this? Why is he saying this? What 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 caused him to come to this particular this particular point? Well. If you remember, if I can just do a, just a brief review. If you remember, Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica. Uh, they're being oppressed. And he's writing to them. He's, he's received a report from Timothy, whom he sent back. To Thessalonica to check on them, really. And so he received this report. And Timothy brings this report back. And, and what we find here is Paul writes through to them, is that the gospel had come to them in the power of the Holy Spirit and made them to be a church. The gospel makes the church, but the ch- gospel also shapes the church. In other words, once one hears the gospel and people hear the gospel, come together, united as a church They're made to be a church by the gospel, by the truth of Christ. Then it shapes their lives. That is to say, everything in life then is brought to the gospel, brought to Christ. And 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 seen then in light of the gospel, seen in light of that which is true of Christ. Everything about us, our emotions, our affections, what we love, what we don't love, uh, uh, our, our thoughts, our philosophies, our politics, our child rearing, our marriages, everything is brought to Christ at that point. The church is made by the gospel, but then shaped by it as well. So what Paul sees in this church in Thessalonica is that they have faith in Jesus. And that faith then shapes their lives. He says, I've seen your work of faith. Their obedience and faith. When we come to faith, it produces in us, it leads us to obedience, you see. And he said, I've seen your your labor of love, really. That is, when we come to God through this gospel of Jesus, we're made to be those who love. And those who love, desire to please. And those who desire to please are willing to sacrifice. And so... This gospel shapes us, moves us, causes us to love, to sacrifice for the good of others. And then this gospel brings to us hope. He says, I've seen your hope. And this hope... Shapes us. This hope that we have in the gospel. We've forgiven our sins. We're reconciled to God. A day will come when Christ will return. And in that return all things will be made well if you will. And so that hope gives us steadfastness. Perseverance. Paul says I've seen all of that in you. In fact this gospel has shaped you so much. That you've turned from idols. That is from thinking anything else to be God but God. And relying upon anything else to shape your life. But God, turned from idols to serve the true and living God, even as you wait for this consummation, this return. And then in chapter 2, Paul says, this has been my experience. Let me lay that out with you. So he goes some history with them about how he had come to them and the way he had come to them and the way the gospel had come to them and, and all of that. And then towards middle to the end of, of that second chapter, Paul gives us, at least for me, one of those statements that should be, at least for me, Emblazoned upon my heart. He says, Here's here's how this gospel ultimately shapes you. You're to walk, that is to live worthy of God. Because he's the one who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Now, what that means is that he is the one who brings us into his glorious kingdom. There's no better rule than to live under the rule of God. He's the gracious, merciful, wise, good, powerful one. All about God is good. And, and this king then who rules over us, he says, this is the glorious kingdom. There's no other kingdom. If you want to build a kingdom for yourself, it won't be glorious like this one. If you want to live according to your own wisdom and your own strength, you see, if you want to live according to all of that, it's going to be a mess. But ultimately, you see, this kingdom of God is a glorious one. It's a good one. It's, it's the very kingdom of God. He called now live worthy of that, live as one who belongs to that kingdom. That's how it's to shape us, you see. And then Paul goes on in chapter three and Begins to lay out some concerns he has for this church. The concerns he has for this church are twofold. Not really twofold, because really two sides of the same coin, if you will. This concern about their perseverance, that is sticking to it. And being able to persevere to the end in faith. Not lose it, if you will. Not turn away from it, but continue to persevere. And their sanctification, big word, means just to be made holy. To be, as we would say, conformed to the image of Christ. Back to the way we are to be as human beings. That is who trust and who love and obey God. So, so he says, these two things I'm concerned about. Your perseverance. And I'm concerned about that because I see the opposition that's against you. There was physical opposition against them. Some of them had been thrown into prison and all of that because of their faith. We know Paul knew well the opposition against the faith. The opposition of the philosophies of the world and just just other ways of thinking about life that come and sort of appeal to us because we have this opposition even within us of a of a sinful or rebellious, if you will, nature against God. And so those things working together. He knew the spiritual opposition of even Satan uh, himself. And so he knew all of that opposition. And so he always had that concern. How can I enable you to persevere and keep on, if you will? And then this idea of sanctification. This growing in holiness. That, that, that concern for him was such that, that he prayed for them. And he says, he says, here's my, my prayer for you. That your love would abound more and more. That as we continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. The very one who loves. This love would abound more and more in you. When I hear that, I need to listen to that. And I need to ask myself. Do I really love? Right? Do I really love? Paul says, I want that love to abound in you more and more so that you'll be blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, I want you to persevere to the end and not even just sort of hang on, but I want you to grow in holiness in love, you see. So much so that then by chapter 4, he's able to say, I want you to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. The way that we walk worthy of him is to walk in such a way that pleases him. Now, that's pleasing the glorious king of the glorious kingdom. There's nothing better in life than to live pleasing the Lord. There really isn't. And it isn't that we please the Lord so that life will go well for us. Right? That would be idolatry. Our idol is a good life. And pleasing the Lord is the way to get it. Or it would be legalism. Oh, oh if I please the Lord, then he'll accept me and do nice things for me. No, the joy of life is pleasing him. That's what brings great that's human, that's flourishing as a human being. Pleasing him. From that comes this life of, of real contentment and peace and joy. Pleasing him, you see. So he says, This is this is where I, I want you to, to go. Now the question then is: how does that come about? How is that accomplished? Well, I think that's why Paul comes to this verse 12 here. He begins to lay it out. And he says the context in which that is accomplished, that perseverance and that sanctification is in the church. Paul doesn't use the word church here, but but he implies it because he uses an expression that, that tells us he's thinking of of church, the way Paul understands church. Now, the word church is an interesting one, especially the way that we use it. People say, well, did you go to church on Sunday? And what they mean is you show up at this particular building or a particular building where where Christians gathered. And so we use the word church often for, for the building even. I remember when we were meeting at Deerfield, people would come to me and they would say, when are you going to start building your church? First, I had to correct them that it wasn't my church. Uh, and then I said, well, it started. We've already started. And they look at me. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah. When did it start? Well, in June, 1988. And they would say, well, really, how long is it going to take? And I said, well, until Jesus comes. And you get this look like the those building committees, but, but, but it it really is. We have a funny term. In fact, we confuse. Some of you may have been confused by this when you first started attending. We refer to all of this as the church house. And we do that deliberately, right? A little hyphenated church house word uh, so that we don't, we don't confuse ourselves because, of course, church isn't a building. The, the scripture uses a lot of metaphors, if you will, ways for us to understand what church is, like uh, the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And, and when we hear that, we realize, all right, like a bride is joined to her husband, we're joined together with Christ. And like the bride has a head, we have a head who is Christ. And this head is our protector, our provider. This head gives us life, if you will. We understand that. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. Another metaphor used about the church, the church is the body of Christ. We think of body, as Paul does with, in 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages, with, with many different members, hands and feet and noses and ears and eyes and all of that. He says, all right, that's what we're to be, and we're gifted differently. And with the body of Christ, we think of how is it that we serve love? How is it that we serve one another? Another metaphor, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as we think of the Old Testament temple as the very place of the dwelling place of God among men, and we think of the church, and it kind of takes our breath away to think of the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God lives among us in the world, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But one other metaphor that Paul alludes to here very strongly, I think, and that is one that he, he, he speaks of often in the context of the household of God, that is the family of God. And the reason I say that is that 19 times throughout this little short letter of First Thessalonians, Paul refers to the church there, the Christians there, as brothers. Now, that's an inclusive term. It includes brothers and sisters, if you have an English Standard Version, you'll find a little footnote, and you get onto the footnote, and it says, Brothers and sisters. This is an inclusive term. And, 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 but it's a family term. It speaks to those in the church as family, as siblings, related to one another because they share a common father. Remember, one of the one of the uh, uh, characteristics of the church in Macedonia, as I mentioned during the offering time, was that they were poor, but even in, they, in their poverty, they were generous to other believers. And we said that the reason they were generous to other believers was that they had first given themselves to the Lord, Paul says, and then to us, that is, to one another. That is, they understood that when they had given themselves to the Lord, they were related intimately related, family related, to each other, right? My kids, Joshua and Grace, are siblings because I, Karen too, parents, right? Through us, if that weren't true, they wouldn't be brothers and sisters. They share this common parent. And thus, we share this common father. So we're really brothers and sisters. Make this household language, family language, it's the context in which we persevere and are sanctified. A number of years ago, a couple of books came out about the family. I don't honestly remember the author. Uh, the first book in my office is Green but I don't remember who wrote it. I just remember the color of it. But uh, uh, you might have read these books. Uh, one's called The Sacred Marriage. The other's called Sacred Parenting. Now, I love those titles because I, I actually like the word sacred. It always makes me kind of feel like I'm being religious. But 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 sacred, uh, uh, but it's, it's a bait and switch title. Because what he means by this, if you read these books, is, and you read sacred marriage, you know, you have all these real warm fuzzies going over your head. What he says is that marriage is a laboratory for sanctification. To make you holy. And the reason is, because when a man and woman get married, it doesn't always go well. Right, and so when that happens, you grow in holiness. You see, and the same thing with parenting. You know, you have this baby, and it's wonderful, and you, oh. but then you realize your own sin very quickly, and that sparks this movement to holiness. So, so we could call sacred church. See, this is the lab. This is the place in which God enables us with each other. By his spirit, through each other, to persevere, hang together, keep on, and also to grow in holiness. This is the context. Church. So what he's doing now is saying, here's the situation. The gospel has come to you and made you. The gospel has come to you and shapes you. Now, what I'm concerned about, Paul says, is what I'm always concerned about, or we're always concerned, perseverance and sanctification for believers. So so I, I need to give you some final instructions about life together. So much so that that, that his, his his little final benediction at the end, verses 23 and 24, uh he, he, he speaks of 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 their being kept in there is sanctification. He says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Right? Bring you to the fullness of God. The God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that he says. He who calls you. This very one who called you. Into his glorious kingdom. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. See that, that sense of it. So, so that's where he's heading. And he says now for that to happen. The context in which that happens. Is is Church. And so he's going to talk to them about the worship, really, of the church. Verses 16 through 22. That'll be in a couple of weeks. 16 through 23. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. For you don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophesying. Test hold that which, and hold that which is good and, and abstain from every sort of evil. You know, so in, As you come to listen and to worship and to praise and all of that, he gives instructions there. And then in verses 14 and 15 next week. He, he talks about how they're to relate to each other, really. Because, you see, there's all kinds of people in the life of the church. He says, he says there's, there's, there's those who are idle, faint-hearted, weak, and, and so that pretty much describes all of us would fall into that one of those categories, probably. And so uh, he says, here's how to relate to each other. Now, today, we're going to take up these verses 12 and 13. He says, listen, if you're going to persevere and be sanctified, You need this, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. He says, if, church, if you're going to persevere to the end and if you're going to be sanctified, here's the means by which, one means through which it's, those who lead you. Now, you may think that this is a rather self-serving sermon. But I assure you that it's just the next passage that appears in First Thessalonians. So I didn't pick this for any particular reason other than it's here. Uh, and so here we come to it. And for you to realize, of course, that I too, just like you, am under the authority of others all of us may lead in one sphere and be under the authority of others in another sphere. And, and for me, the, one of the great things about being in a denomination and being Presbyterian and all that is that I I am not the head of the food chain by any means in the context of the life of the church. And so so there are those to whom I answer and all of that. So this applies to me as much as you. I need, as you need, those to lead. And I need then as he puts it here, to respect, that is to recognize them. That's the first notion here, to recognize, to see that they're leading, and to honor that, to respect them. And even he says, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. One of the means that God uses, really in the church and in other spheres as well, is to give leaders to us. It's fascinating to me. In 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 the In the Ten Commandments, the commandment of honor your father and your mother, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, is the first commandment with a promise. And you remember the promise. The promise is honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Now, when I read the Ten Commandments, I think, A, you could have attached that to any of them, probably. And I think there might be even, at least growing up as a kid, I thought, not as a parent, but as a kid, I I thought there might be more important ones that would lead to, you know, things going well in the land. Like, like don't kill each other, right? And it'll go well with you in the land, especially for those of you who aren't killed. Um, Don't lie to each other. How could you have a community of liars? How could it go well if you're liars? How could it go well if you steal from each other? How could it go well if you're not faithful in relationships, especially marriage? How could it go well if you're coveting each other's stuff all the time and being envious and all of that? How could it go well for you? But, but he attaches this promise to this one. Honor your father and mother. Why? I think this. Because he's, first of all, he's teaching us to be respectful. He's teaching us To honor those in authority over us. And if we learn that, you see, if we really learn that there, then things will go well for the whole community, for the whole family. Because, you see, we won't lie if we've learned to respect. We won't steal if we've learned to respect that which is of others. We won't covet if we've learned to respect others and and what they have as opposed to what we have, we won't we murder if we learn to respect this. Learning to respect, especially those in authority, to be humbled so we can actually learn from those who have gone before us. Uh, really, really is significant. And it's significant in the life of the church. It's significant in the life of the family. It's significant in the life of the church to really learn that this is the means of God. He's always putting people. In authority over us, so that we will learn and they will lead. And so he's saying, This is the means by which I'm giving you shepherds, I'm giving you elders, pastors, because that's clearly who he is uh, alluding to here. You see, every church in the days of Paul was a Presbyterian church. I love saying. Now, not necessarily Presbyterian the way we're Presbyterian, but Presbyterian in the way New Testament churches were Presbyterian. Because this idea of Presbyterian only means governed by elders. There's a word in the New Testament, a Greek word, presbyteros, by which we get Presbyterian. It just simply means old. Which is to symbolize, uh, to allude to, uh, wisdom. And so... Always throughout the scripture, in ancient Israel, there were the elders of Israel. They were the ones who governed Israel, various ways. Uh, in the New Testament, we find as Paul is establishing churches, he appoints elders in every place. And these elders are, are to work, he says here. You're to notice them because of their work. Their work is preaching and teaching and guarding and governing and caring for the flock of God. And that's their their work. And it's to be real work. Uh, this word work uh, gives the impression of sweat and toil and all of that. So it's work. And so you notice them because of their work. Because they care for you. Because they're teaching and, and, and all of that. And he says they're over you in the Lord and admonish you. There is, a, there is a sense of authority. They're overseers, and they're actually over you, Paul says, put over you, including himself, no doubt, but but, but in that particular church, they're elders, pastors, however they line that out. He said they're over you. Now, now that strikes us sometimes to think of these elders as over us, uh, strikes us as a bit scary and maybe unnerving, uh, because... A, our uh, pride, we don't like anybody to be over us particularly. Uh, Moses had that problem, if you know his story. Paul himself had that problem. In fact, one of the things that he does as he writes to this church in Thessalonica is to tell them, no, 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 I really am an apostle. You know, I really did care for you. This, that's, that's the whole of chapter 2 of this letter. Uh, basically, he's telling them, no, no. Now, I know there are people that saying, I ran off, but I didn't really run off. I really do care for you. I, I really do want to come back. All of that's really true uh, because there were those who wouldn't even submit to the apostle. But but uh, so it's scary to us out of pride or, or maybe experience. I mean, we've known pastors and elders. I have. Who were lazy. Who didn't work very hard. We didn't really care, who we were in it for their own gain, not out of love for God, not out of love for the church. There are some we know who have sinned grievously in this role. So it could be by our experience that when we read this, we just go, Whew. Yet still, the apostle says, no, no, no. Or to submit to those in authority over us. It isn't a blind submission nor an absolute submission. In fact, the author of Hebrews is, and we'll come to this in a minute, but the author of Hebrews is, is really even more direct. Verse 17 of chapter 13 of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders, submit to them. So, so there's this sense of, of obedience and submission. It's not a blind obedience. It's not an absolute submission. We know we are only to submit to the degree to which that our leaders are leading us in the Lord, if you will. Uh, Peter, who wrote a great deal about submission, didn't submit when he wasn't able to preach the gospel and speak of God because he said, That's, God is my authority, not men. But, but still this respect for authority because this is the structure of, of the church, if you will. This attitude of submission is, is, is a work of the Holy Spirit and us as believers. We have a spirit of submission, really, in Ephesians in chapter 5. Um, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, a work of the Holy Spirit is is to make us humble, you see, and willing to admit that we need help. And there might be those who could actually help us that God has appointed to do just that. And we have this sense of, spirit of, being willing to submit. Yield to obey. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And realizing that this leadership of those over us really is a leadership of humility, not arrogance. Uh, It didn't start out that way. Uh, The disciples of Jesus were much as we and had a streak of self-centeredness and arrogance on a couple of occasions you might remember that the disciples came to jesus and said do whatever we will you know you please say yes to whatever we're going to ask here you know as a parent when your kid comes to you and says oh just say yes dad to what i'm about to ask you know the answer is going to be no but they came to jesus and what they wanted peter james and john what they wanted is to to sit on his right and left hand to, to, to rule with him you see and uh Jesus suspected something amiss with them. So here's how he described this kind of leadership. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great, one, the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus said, I'm your example of what it means to be a shepherd. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter referred to him as the chief shepherd. Jesus himself referred to himself as the good shepherd. He said, here's what it means to to be a leader in the context of church you serve. You give yourself. And you say, all right. We do this and, and we admonish. It says the work is to oversee, to be over, but also to admonish. And that means to care so much for the flock that you desire to lead them well into paths, as the scripture would put it, of righteousness as a shepherd. To lead them well, you see. And the question is, what makes this work so hard? You know, Paul gives the impression, it's toil. He, he speaks of his own life of, of toiling. What, what really makes it so hard? Very quickly, just a couple of passages. Acts in chapter twenty. Here's a passage where Paul is meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's meeting them in a city called Miletus. As he's traveling through, he doesn't think he's ever going to get back to Ephesus. So he calls for those elders to come. He gives them some final instructions. Verse 24, he says, Acts 20, he says, I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none among you None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, that's the first thing that makes this a hard job. You realize the task. The task is that Jesus makes leaders, stewards, over the ones for whom he died. He says, these are mine. I've died for them. That's what I've done. Now I want you to care for them. I want you to help them persevere. I want you to lead them in holiness. It cost me my life. (laughs) Now you take them. And deliver them to me safe. Of course he doesn't leave us alone in that. But the responsibility. Is indescribable. He says. I know that after my departure. Fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise. Men speaking twisted things. To draw the disciples away after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years. I didn't cease day or night. To admonish every one of you with tears. And so Paul says, that's that's how this struck me. I kept up this every day with tears so that you would persevere and be sanctified. That's how I hear that. Paul says, I hear that because I know they're enemies. Yes, God is helping me with their enemies and he's given me the flock in order to protect. As a shepherd would protect from wolves, I have to protect from false teachers and false ways. I have to keep them on this track of, of doctrinal orthodoxy. The sense in which... We're stewards of the word of God. If we lose the word of God as the church, we've lost it for every generation. And we never forget that. We must keep it and live it so our children have it and their children have it so that the children of the world has this gospel, you see. And there are wolves and when we get it, we understand all that's against it. And then in Hebrews in chapter 13, notice how Paul puts it. In verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke, the word, spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And Leaders realize the means of being able to persevere, the means of sanctification is to live a life in such a way that other people can imitate and be safe. Verse 17, obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You see, while leaders serve the congregation, the congregation is never the master of the leader. Even though leaders serve the congregation, the congregation is never the master of the leader. Jesus is. In our book of government as Presbyterians, It tells elders that they're to represent the mind of Christ. This isn't a democracy. We don't represent the mind of the congregation to God in prayer, but not in leading. We represent the mind of Christ to the congregation. So we serve, but the congregation is never the master. Only the master is the master. But notice something else the author of Hebrews puts it. The way Paul puts it is to esteem them, be at peace with them. But he says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Esteem them in such a way and love that it's actually a joy to lead you. That's what he's saying. Because he says, if not, it'll, it won't go well with you. It'll go badly for you. The way John Calvin puts it is like this. And, you know, Calvin was a little straightforward. He says, hence, the apostle declares that it would be unprofitable to the people to cause sorrow and mourning to their pastors and leaders by their ingratitude. And he did this, uh, declared this, that he might... intimate to us that we cannot be troublesome or disobedient to our pastors without hazarding our own salvation. Let's remember that we're suffering the punishment of our perverseness whenever the pastors grow cold in their duty or less diligent than they ought to be. He's saying, listen, the means of God is to give leaders. And if they're happy and joyful in leading, they'll really lead. They'll really want to. They'll really give themselves. They'll really spend. They'll really sacrifice. Why? Because it's a joy to do that. Parents know that. Parents know that what really wearies is the thanklessness of children. It isn't the wiping noses and staying up all night and helping with the homework and all that. That's not what causes weariness. That's what you do as a parent. But if your kids are actually happy that you do it, Wow, miracle, but wow, right? You see, coaches know this, teachers know this. It's not the fact that a kid doesn't get it that causes the teacher to become weary. What causes the teacher to become weary is when the student gives up and doesn't care. When they care, I've never met a teacher that won't take a caring student and work day and night. Really cares, really wants this. Because when there's joy, then there's great effort. And he's saying to the church, this is the means that I've given you. If you do it, in, if, you, if you're not at peace with leaders and they're not at peace with you, there'll be no joy. If there's no joy, there'll be no effort. If there is no effort, it will go badly for confidence we have in all of this is that Jesus is our chief shepherd. He's the one who models for other shepherds. He's the one who calls shepherds. He's the one who institutes the church and its, its structure really the way it is to be. he's the model of this good shepherd, the chief shepherd he gives his life Now, of course in the giving of his life it's everything of course it's the atonement of our sin when an elder pastor leader in the church sacrifices for the sake of the church there's no atonement that takes place but with the chief shepherd he said this is it you see this is What makes you. This is what shapes you. What will keep you. He said, I will give you those who will shepherd you. Love them. Esteem them. Respect them. For their work. And I'll bless you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He Broke it, he gave it to his disciples, said, this is my body which is given to you. In the same way, and Jesus took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples as well. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Today what we declare, yes, atonement for sin. And we declare him to be the good, the great, the chief shepherd. And as such, we know that we'll never want. We know that he will give us pastures which are green and good. We know that he'll lead us beside waters that will nourish our souls. We know that even though we will walk through death, we need not fear because he'll be with us. All that's about him will guard us and guide us and keep us. That even when we face enemies, he'll lay out a feast for us. And Even when we're hurt, oil will come and soothe. And we'll always know that his goodness, his mercy will follow us. Now, how's he going to get that to us? Church. It says, I'll give you shepherds who take from that which is mine and bring that to you that you may have. It. If I might. Give this to you. Let's pray. Father, The name of this one. Who is the good, the chief. The great shepherd of the sheep. In church, may we receive from him. All that we need. Assurance of forgiveness of sins. Assurance of reconciliation with you. Assurance of. Perseverance. Assurance of holiness. Assurance. Of being holy in blamelessness. On the day that he returns. This. I pray that you would take this bread and juice. And set it aside that we know. In such a way that we know that we're. In the very presence of this. Good chief great shepherd. We pray now. That through this, you will feed us. In Jesus' name.